tonight, the second chapter of Paul's letter to the Philippians. Paul, Paul is a remarkable man. Um, the apostle of apostles, uh, of apostles, so to speak, and did not enjoy or often do um, any defense of himself, but he would do it if the gospel was on the line and the sufficiency and the supremacy and centrality of the gospel were on the line. As Christians, we have so many good examples of the faith we are called to live in our lives if we're fortunate, and I think most of us are. There are so many heroes and martyrs and church leaders and authors and pastors and to whom we can look to see the kind of lives we could live for Christ, right? The apostles like Paul would probably be the highest and the best of all those. But when Paul really wants to drive home the necessity of our unity, our unity, if we're to be sufficiently engaged in the conflict for the faith of the gospel in the world, there's only one actual example of what it calls for in each of us. Only one perfect example of precisely what it calls for. This unity for the sake of the faith of the gospel. He calls us exclusively to the mind and means of the one that God has highly exalted and named Lord of all. He takes us right to Christ. Christ for us in His humiliation of Himself. Jesus meets us in the depths to which He descended to bring the truth of the Gospel to us. We must meet Him there as the church, as Christians. If we're going to be the church that He has called us to be, we must learn to be humiliated for His sake that Christ may be exalted in our midst. This is true all the time. Let me pray and we'll begin here. Father, thank You for Your Son, Jesus Christ, whom You sent. What He shows us, absolutely, but what He is for us and what He's done for us. God, I pray that we would see Him clearly tonight in this particular passage in Philippians 2. Help me speak to that end. Help me not get in the way of this text and help all who are here, all who are here, to hear it, to believe it. And God, let us do it. We ask this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, now, to get our bearings, since it's been granted to you, he's saying, to believe on Jesus and suffer for His sake in the conflict for the faith of the Gospel. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, what He's been calling for, if any affection and mercy, so if anything we believe about Jesus is true, if we have any sense of how we are at peace with God in Christ, if the Holy Spirit dwells among you at all, if you have any affection any mercy whatsoever, Paul says, fulfill my joy by being like-minded. The joy of the minister is tied to the unity or the lack thereof of the people under his charge. This is what the Bible teaches. Fulfill my joy by being like-minded. That's what he wants them to be. Having the same love. Being of one accord, of one mind. <clears throat> If the people being shepherded are not united by the love of Christ for them, if they aren't of one accord or of one mind, 
the joy of the one ministering the gospel to them will be lacking, he says. And a joyless minister is a detriment to our souls. We know that from Hebrews 13, 17 as well as this text. We should be able, Paul is pleading with them, to put aside the things that divide us in light of the importance of the gospel. Paul is suffering for the sake of the gospel and he's literally pleading with the people under his charge in Philippi. Listen, can you just get on the same page? I'm begging you. Fulfill my joy by being like-minded, which is what I instructed you to be and described for you in these previous verses. Now, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Right? Shouldn't a minister's joy, a pastor's joy, come from Christ and not be dependent on anything or anyone else? I mean, that's what pastors, what ministers have to do, right? That's what we tell them anyway. Listen, people are going to be difficult, but you, you can't let that bother you. You can't let it get to you. You can't let it affect how you're supposed to do your ministry. You have to stay the course. I got a letter like that during COVID. I did. Pastor, you can't be struggling and upset. What are we supposed to do if you're like that? But you have to learn to put up with people's nonsense, Pastor. That's, that's part of the job. And Paul says, my joy as a minister of the gospel to you is lacking because you don't have unity. That's powerful. This is Paul. This is not a wimp like me. This is Paul saying that. And the Philippians might say, Paul, it's, it's not up to us. Your joy is up to you. You're responsible for your joy. This, that sounds like a Christian t-shirt we would wear. You're responsible for your joy. Don't get discouraged, Paul. By our unwillingness to submit to Christ. Don't let that discourage you. Put on a happy face, Paul. Listen, Paul is not worried about whether or not they like him. That's not it. There's a gospel to be proclaimed. And they have to be unified in order to proclaim it. And Paul says that if anything Christ has done means anything to them. Notice the words he uses. If anything Christ has done for you means anything to you. Just a... If there's a little bit of recognition in your hearts of all that God is for you and His Son, if there's any of that, just take that and fulfill my joy by being like-minded. It's interesting that here, in the flow of his argument, he he says like-minded, when earlier it was unity and it was clear. Here, he's it's almost like he's so exasperated in his spirit as he writes with their ongoing refusal to be unified that he's begging by the time he gets to verses 27 through 30, in lunacy. Listen, just, you know, vaguely get on the same page, he says. Somewhere. Paul's joy is not dependent on their behavior, but it is affected by it in some measure. He, he can't feel that his joy is fulfilled because he's a shepherd and the people he's shepherding are so divided. Now, why is that? Why would it bother him so much? If they're not unified, if they refuse to listen to anything he's saying, because that means what he's preaching and what he labors and prays and works to give to them is not being received and not being appropriated. And beloved, that is discouraging, especially if you were sitting in prison because you believe these things so deeply. So if the one who proclaims the word is already struggling inside, in addition to the fact that 
what you preach, what he preaches is so valuable to him that he's chained up in prison for it. The people to whom he labors in the gospel aren't listening. That affects his joy. It affects it. And he's being very honest about it here. And in Paul-like fashion, he's almost being sarcastic. There is limitless consolation in Christ for us. What do you mean by saying, if there's any consolation in Christ, there's limitless consolation in Christ. We've been reconciled to God. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There's limitless fellowship of the Spirit that is ours for the taking. We could have what He calls us to have. We could have it now. The work of the Spirit to conform us all together to the image of Christ is nonstop. There's limitless affection and mercy for us in Christ, overflowing to us every moment. What would complete Paul's joy in his suffering would be if they actually believed that and lived accordingly. If they would put aside the personal agendas and priorities that got in the way of genuine unity. So that they could strive together for the faith of the gospel instead of worrying about everything else. Paul's joy isn't tied to what they think of him. But it is tied to whether or not the people he loves and cares for so much believe the truth he is preaching. Is the minister not supposed to be affected by the refusal of his people to believe all the good news of the gospel for them? The unity the gospel calls for isn't a tangent from it. It's not just, it would be nice if we could also have that. That's not the way Paul talks about our unity. This kind of unity is the tangible picture of what the gospel says and does for us in Christ. Our sins are forgiven. We have peace with God. Our souls are sheltered. They're safe by the blood and righteousness of Christ for eternity. Nothing and no one can separate us from His love or snatch us from His hand. And Paul is saying here, how can that not make us unselfish people? Where's the gap in his communication? Do you see what he's saying? How, how, how does it have no effect? It would be, if it could have any effect, that would be great. Right? How does it have no effect whatsoever? So the Philippian believers need to be careful. They shouldn't be kidding themselves that their lack of unity and inability or a reluctancy to engage in the battle for the faith of the gospel won't have a negative effect on the one God sent to proclaim Christ to them and teach them His way. So Paul is going to get very specific in these next verses about how they might fulfill his joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. How do we get there? Right? Verse 3. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. Nothing. Nothing. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. There's, there's the reveal. There's what's going on, right? What is the issue among these believers in Philippi? What is it exactly that drives or fuels this division that hinders a church's ability to engage in the conflict for the faith of the gospel? Is it, um, you know, is it the worldview of, of the Roman Empire and the philosophers? Is it some major 
uh, external attack? Is it the agenda of the worldly powers to subvert the powers of God in the world? Is that where the problem is? No. No. Here's what it is. You know why there's not unity in the body of Christ? People think too highly of themselves. There's no lowliness of mind. We find our own preferences and agendas and desires more important than those of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Those people must get their way. Their desires must be met, and if they aren't, there will be conflict. It won't be the conflict that we're engaged in for the sake of the faith of the gospel, but there, the church will be characterized by conflict because people can't humble themselves and won't humble themselves. It's so obvious when a church is affected by that and burned down by that that Paul can see it from Rome. He, can, he, he knows by what he's hearing that that's what's going on. And he's hundreds of miles away. It is selfish ambition or even conceit, he says, that makes a congregation act this way. It's just self-absorption and pride. Nothing else. The insistence that we get what we want is the epitome of pride in the church. Pride doesn't always look like Satan trying to tempt Eve with his word over God's word. Sometimes pride, the kind of pride that destroys the unity of Christ in the church, is just, no, I'm going to get my way. And we're going to do what I want. And if we don't do what I want, everybody's going to suffer for it. The Bible calls that conceit. Not It doesn't coddle it. The Bible doesn't coddle that kind of hard attitude. It condemns it and calls it out. We need the lowliness of mind that because of what Christ has done for us in His grace causes us to think of others as more important than ourselves. What would that look like? It would look like you giving in and not insisting on your own way. That's precisely what it would look like. Now, we might think, well, now wait a minute, how do you run an organization like that? If, if everybody's just, it'd be an all-out mess if everybody just deferred to the other, but I wouldn't know. Right? None of us would know. We've never seen that in the church, ever. We could try it. See what happens. And then maybe discover that God knows what He's talking about before we dismiss it out of hand. And by the way, the idea that it would be impossible to actually function like that is is just a cover-up. That's a cover-up for our own pride and the fact that we're scared to death to submit to Jesus and do it His way. We, we have to learn to see our sin as God sees it. Right? It's, it's been dealt with. Christ has dealt with it. It doesn't need to destroy us that we're sinners. But we need to face facts here. Our insistence on our own way at the expense of unity, beloved, it is so deadly. It's selfish ambition and conceit, Paul says. We are high-minded about ourselves. High-minded. Because he calls for lowliness of mind. And, and when we insist on our own way, we are the Bible says, see, you think you're better than other people. You're conceited. Right? Verse 4, let each of you look out. So here's what he's talking about, right? Say, Tony, is it, is it really about that? Just 
right? Verse 4. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests. Ah, so that is what we're talking about. Just our own personal interests. But also for the interest of others. Now, Paul is not condoning looking out for your own interests too. Right? Like, like, it's okay to look out for your own interests. Of course you're going to want to do that, but just don't forget about the other guy. No, no, no. He's stating that right now that's all that's happening. That's all that you just have people just looking out for their own interests. The body of Christ in Philippi is divided by this. It's not neutral. It can't be neutral. Right? So the church has to find something to get rallied around that is the same and singular and big and that squashes all these other things. Because if you just let people run wild with their interests, they're going to divide the church. And this is not like a club where everybody's voice is, you know, has, has the same pole. And that's not the way it works. We're rallied around Christ or we aren't a church. Like how much clearer can the Bible be? Paul is saying you only look out for your own interests and that needs to stop. And that he, that he words it that way. Our own interests, whatever they may be. Whatever our personal sacred cows are. When in fact God has called us to something higher than ourselves. Higher than ourselves. Such committed living calls for an illustration, doesn't it? It calls for an example. All right, Paul, what does that look like? Right. At this point in the text, with so high and self denying a calling. From where is Paul going to get an illustration? Who in the world lives like Paul is calling us to? Who is that self-effacing? Come on. And amazingly, Paul doesn't actually use himself here. Because he'll do that. Right? He's even said in another place, Imitate me, for I also imitate Christ. Not here. Not for this. Verse 5, Let this mind be in you. Here's lowliness of mind, as opposed to being high-minded about ourselves. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, unlike us, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself, did this to himself, made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, a slave, and coming in the likeness of men. The way Paul words this is so shrewd and so beautiful. He lays out the truth of the gospel in the person and character of Christ. Do you see what he's doing? He loves these people. My Philippian brothers and sisters, look to Christ. Stop looking at yourselves. Look at Christ. The mind we're to have is the mind of Christ. The mind that Christ had in His incarnation on the earth specifically. When He who had no sin came to be sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God in 2 Corinthians 5.21. That Christ. The one that for others became sin. His mind must be our mind. And here's the rub of it. Right? Here's the rub of it. 
He was a human being in the form of God in verse 5. It was as the God-man. In his Godness, his divinity, that he made himself of no reputation. That's not just a blanket statement about his morality. This is a statement in light of what we have been called to and what Paul is pleading for the Philippian believers to become. Jesus, God in human flesh, took on the mind that Paul is calling the Philippians and us to have tonight. Jesus became like this. And the minute we realize, okay, the standard I'm to meet is Christ, we ought to be on our knees. Every single last one of us, especially the preacher. Right? I mean, I mean, for, for, for a few minutes, can, can we not just do what the text says? And just say, all right, you know what? I'm not going to sit and let my mind work and reassure me that I'm in the right. I'm just going to listen and let the text wash over me and ask God to have his way with me. All right, just, just do that. We all have to do this tonight. We have, Look at Christ. Jesus is God, but made himself of no reputation. If God in the flesh does that, how much is actually being asked of us here? If God did this. In context, in, in flow of what Paul is talking about here, that means Jesus didn't act the way that he did to become a big deal. Je- Jesus was going to draw all peoples to himself, but not so like he could like feel good about it. Like he wasn't trying to be a celebrity. And the implication is that when we refuse to have lowliness of mind as pure people, as, as, as sinners born of Adam, saved and justified, yes, but still in these mortal bodies of sin, when we refuse to humiliate ourselves to that degree, what is going on? What have we not understood about the most basic essence of the gospel? That's why he talks the way he does at the beginning of chapter 2, this chapter we're in. If, if, if any of this is true, wouldn't, wouldn't, it, wouldn't you let, some, like, let it do something to you, Paul says? When we refuse to have lowliness of mind. It's not, we're not even called to make ourselves of no reputation. Jesus did that. Paul is just saying, just humble yourselves a little bit. When we act out of selfish ambition and conceit as human beings, it's just, we just have opinions. We, we all have our preferences. We all have things we like. We all have ways we want things to go. And Paul is saying, look, it can't be like that or you won't be about the gospel. And what's the rationale he uses? He says, Look at Christ. When we are willing to demand that we get our way and treat others horribly when they stand in the way of it, in the body of Christ, Paul, Paul literally feels that in prison. He, he's saying to them, and this is very un-Pauline, un-Pauline but he does it. See, you guys are taking my joy away from me. Right? You're making this too hard. Look at Christ. Look to the gospel. What is it? Has it done anything for you? Does it have any effect on you? Does any of it mean anything to you? He said. 
That, that's, this is how he categorizes that demand that we all push sometimes in ourselves to be heard and listened to and basically obeyed in the church. Like, I want, we're going to do what I want to do. So let's, let's not kid ourselves when, when we're doing that, when we're acting like that. We're willing to say, Paul is saying, even to those God has put over us in the Lord, you do what I want or there will be trouble. And if you listen, everything in the church works that way. Everything. Everything. Oh, you don't want to. Oh, that's going to make them mad. That's going to make them mad. That's going to make them mad. Okay. Okay. We just won't do anything. Right? Like that, that's, that's what determines what the church does. The church of Jesus Christ. Well, you know, you gotta, like, I don't, it, it, there's a gap. There's a gap. Hebrews 13, 17, which, which may be on Paul's mind. Paul may have written it. We don't know, but there's some teeth in that argument. But Hebrews 13, 17, teaches that Christians are to obey their leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls. Now, it takes lowliness of mind for a church to do that because leaders are sinners too. Right? Those over us in the Lord are also sinners like us and don't know everything and don't have the plan that works all the time and they aren't supposed to be celebrities. They aren't supposed to be big you know, prideful, attention-sucking personalities. They're sinners. And the command is, obey your leaders and submit to them. That's two huge words. For they are keeping watch over your soul. So the rationale of listening to them and following their lead is what they do for you. How when we're angry with them, they're on their knees praying for us. And working to bring the gospel to us as Paul did in Philippi. God has an order and a way of things that if we follow it and submit to it, brings peace and actually results in all the fruit that he calls the church to be producing. Right? There's, there's just a way for it to be done. And we act like it's so hard. It's not so hard. We just all need to humble ourselves. There won't be peace, and therefore there won't be the unity that leads to singular engagement in the conflict for the faith of the gospel without self-humiliation in the church. It, it will not happen. We'll be too busy with the conflicts that come from thinking too highly of our own selves. And listen, most of what we're willing to fight over and even divide over are just preferences when you really boil it down. No matter how we try to dress them up with spiritual decorations, they aren't actually important in light of the gospel. They're just important to us, and that's different because we think too highly of ourselves. And here's the thing about that verse in Hebrews. Christians in the church are commanded to let their leaders actually lead them in obeying and submitting to them with joy and not with groaning. That's what Hebrews 13 says. Let them lead you with joy and not with groaning. For that would be of no advantage to you. Now when you hear that, now do you hear the echo of Paul back in verse 2 in our text tonight? Right? Fulfill my joy by being like-minded. 
not fulfill my joy by worshiping and, and, and thinking so highly of me. Fulfill my joy by having genuine unity and engaging in this conflict for the faith of the gospel. If that's what would fulfill Paul's joy, then Paul's writing is of the Spirit, which we know it is, because we trust that's what the Word is. He, he, look, look, at, look at what he says. If, if, if He's saying, if, if you take my joy from me, it's going to hurt you. You're you're going to force me into ministry, Paul is saying, because I long to get to you. That is not to your advantage and is only going to hurt you. It will hurt the church if the joy of leadership is taken away from the leaders. Now, can leaders hurt a church? Oh, my goodness, absolutely. Leaders are in a position to do more damage to the church sometimes than the congregation can. So it's not like Paul is saying, listen, it's, it's all on the congregation. It's not that. It's that when there's division because we think too highly of ourselves, look at what it's doing to Paul. Right? Look, look at the effect it's having on this man. We, we just shoot ourselves in the foot when we refuse to humble ourselves. Paul, shouldn't the leaders humble themselves? Yes, beloved, absolutely. But they must also lead. And sometimes to lead means you have to pick a way that will make some people mad. And this is what the Scripture teaches. Leading doesn't automatically mean arrogance. Sometimes you just have to lead and say this is the way we're going. And if a leader does that for the faith of the gospel, then obey and submit to that. If he's doing it for himself to exalt himself, I mean, that's... that's Horrible. Don't don't follow that. Paul's rationale in all this is listen, Jesus was willing to take on the form of a slave for you. That that's how I mean he is laying it on. He became a slave when he came in human form to rescue us, but now we get to take on the form of somebody that always gets their way. Jesus became a slave. We become the king of the church. We'll get in the way of the gospel for this. Like, again, his words always make so much sense when you start to see them in context. Like, does, is there any consolation in Christ? Is, is, has God brought any peace to any of you? Paul is writing. Verse 8, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Now, Paul isn't telling them that they have to die for anyone. Precisely the opposite. Jesus did the work of dying for others. What he's saying is that Jesus' willingness to go that far, even to the cross, the most humiliating death possible at that time, for the sake of the gospel, ought to, at the very least, in some way, Anyway, in verse 4, affect our mindset in the church as his servants towards one another. God isn't telling us to go die on a cross for each other. He's just telling us to humble ourselves towards each other. I mean, it ought to have a little bit of an effect on us, what he did. 
any effect if we're so inclined to oblige the king of the universe today. This, the, Philippians 2 isn't just Christology, doctrine about Christ. It is that. We're learning a lot about the two natures of Christ in one body on the earth. Absolutely. Fully God, fully man in one body. But here, this doctrine, what we're finding out about Christ is presented to us as an example of how we are called to live towards one another within the church. These verses are to inform and facilitate the lowliness of mind and forgetfulness of self that bring unity for the sake of the conflict over the faith of the gospel. Jesus Christ couldn't have humbled himself any further than the humiliation he suffered on the cross despite who he was and is, right? We are not God in human flesh. So the trip down for us, the journey of humiliation for us is much shorter, beloved. God does not exalt those who exalt themselves. He will not. He opposes the proud, which is what we now know we are when we're insisting on our own way. That's what pride looks like. In verses 1 to 4, he's described as verse 9, Therefore, because Christ became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, humbling himself, therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, everywhere, everyone from everywhere that has ever existed and ever will, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, the point here is not mainly that, okay, so if I want to be exalted, I have to humble myself. No, that's just a self-serving reason to humble yourself. That's not how he's presented to us as the example here. The point here is Paul is saying, listen, only Christ, only Christ descended as far as God commanded only Christ humiliated himself as much as God commands. Only Christ went to the place of complete submission and humility to the Father. And therefore only he has been given the name Lord at which every knee will bow and every tongue confess to the glory of God the Father. So the only acceptable posture for the rest of us is absolute humility and lowliness of mind. No matter how low we are, we can get lower. Only Christ, only Christ has the place that must and will be honored and exalted at all times from all people and will be. Only He can require such worship, honor, centrality, priority, and admiration. Nobody else doesn't matter what you've done, what you've accomplished, who you are, what your name is. You have nothing on Christ. And this is His church. So let every other name, every other demand, every other preference submit to Him. And yet here we are with the audacity in the church, in every church, to demand that folks do what we want and listen to us as though we're the main thing in here. Because that's what we do when we do that. We exalt ourselves. And where Christ is exalted, nobody else can exalt themselves or He won't be seen. We go down 
because he has been lifted up. The exaltation of Christ as Lord is being put before us as the reason we should humble ourselves towards one another. Paul doesn't go to some moral platitude. Paul says, my goodness, look at Christ. Is there any recognition of Christ among you Philippians? Any at all? Who in their right mind would take on the posture that belongs only to Christ in the church? I must be listened to. I must be bowed down to. Who would do that? Well, I've I've never said such a thing. We don't say it like that. Again, we, we never say what we mean. Right? We know that we would get dogged for it. We know it would, like, I can't let people actually think that's what I think. So I have to do this so that they think this about me and not that. And we're just scheming and running all the time. Our minds are frantically trying to figure out how to, how to, you know, and, and Paul says, look, you, you can't be engaged in conflict with one mind for people's souls if, if, if you're just consumed with yourself. You, you can't be. So fulfill my joy, please, by getting on the same page in some way. Humble yourselves in some way. And fulfill my joy. Only Christ can save. Do what I say or else. And here's the amazing thing. He still doesn't talk to us like that. Paul has taken us to the cross, hasn't he? To the cross where Jesus gave himself up for us. Is there any consolation in Christ? There's only consolation in Christ for us, for all who believe. Only consolation. All consolation. Such is the worth and sufficiency and value and power of His blood and His righteousness for us. It's all consolation in Christ. What are we, what are we lacking that Christ is not providing? We have peace with God. How could we not humble ourselves? Look at how low Jesus went. How can we not become people of no reputation for His sake? How can we continue to exalt ourselves? Because it turns out that's what's happening. That's why there's not unity. Why is Paul laying this on so thick to the Philippians? Because it's heavy. He's writing them from prison. We've talked about it before in Philippians. He's at this imprisonment, he's chained to a Roman guard 24-7. I suppose they switched in shifts. I don't know, but he's stuck. His life is about that long right now, right? And it, it look, for the sake of the gospel, he uses it. Like, do you want me to sit here and continue to suffer and be miserable because you guys can't get on the same page for the sake of the gospel? That's how he writes why does he go so far as to call out what's keeping them from unity as selfish ambition or conceit? That's kind of mean, Paul. Well, yeah. Beloved, because the gospel is greater than everything. That's why he's talking about this. The world needs to hear the message of Christ. And it needs to hear it from a united front more than anything. It's, it's, it's not usually big doctrinal disagreements and debates that break churches and Christian communities apart. They certainly can. And when they need to happen, they should, right? Again, Paul does not say unity at all costs. 
Paul says unity for the sake of the gospel. So it's anti-gospel. You don't compromise to keep the unity, right? But it, it really usually isn't. You don't usually find a church, not anymore, right? I mean, this was the Reformation, big time. That's the big one. Uh, but, but after that, you know, there's been some major shifts in Christianity since then, right? That where new whole denominations have formed, and that is what it is, right? But most of it's, it's not that most of the time. Usually, it's 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 not like well, the devil did. You know, society is so hard, culture is so hard. Uh, uh, liberalism crept in, and, and sure, it it can and it will. And, but there are other enemies too. It's not just liberalism. But beloved, it's us. It's us. We are the problem. It's us. Our own everyday mundane actions and attitudes in the little ins and outs of church life together. The little comments. The little jabs. The cold shoulders. I'm mad at you. I'm upset with you. I'm dissatisfied with you. But I'm not going to tell you why. I'm just going to let you sit and think about it to punish you until you come around to my way. All those little things that we do in church life together, they eat away at the body of Christ like a cancerous tumor. And the stakes are simply too high for that. Christ is too big and too great for this. It can't stay like this in the church. Look look at the text. Look at Philippians. It's, it's not all right. It's lazy and rebellious to just say, well, that's the way it is when you got people. Man. People are going to be people. Unfortunately, yes. That's unacceptable in the church. Christ is Lord over this church. Lord over this church. As He was Lord over the Philippian church. And every other that claims his name. And even those that don't, he is still Lord. Our knees are meant to be bowed to him. Our tongues are meant for confessing that he is Lord and he is supreme and he's the main thing and he is central and his story matters. If Jesus is real to us at all, if there's anything we take from him, for the comfort and refuge of our souls, then let us keep His commandments. Paul doesn't question the genuineness of their faith here. That's not how he does it. Well, you, maybe you guys just aren't saved. No, no, no. You could say that whenever you want it, right? If somebody is messing up. Oh, you might not be saved. We don't get to make that call. And we shouldn't be trying based on the words of Jesus. He'll sort that out. We preach the gospel. What he does do is say, listen, if since you profess to be Christians, since that's what you say you are, could you at least try to act like it just a little bit in any way, in any way? So, beloved, beloved, hear the gospel tonight. We need it. Every church needs it.
Christ lived for you. He died for you. He rose for you. For you. In all your mess, in all our selfish ambition and conceit, that's what he was dying for. It's covered. It's forgiven. Stop living like that's who you are. It's not. He became your sin that you might become His righteousness. Look to Him. Look to what He did for you. Look to who He is. Don't don't you see Him tonight? Don't you see Him all sufficient for you? All the time. Let us meditate on the mind and means of Christ for us. Because... Paul is arguing here that if we exalt ourselves at the cost of unity, Christ will not be exalted in our midst. So we trust Him. We trust Him to make us what He wants us to be. It's a long journey home. We're not always going to get it right. But the Bible, Paul argues, look, if there's anything in this, let it affect you in some way. Please. That's what he's saying. Fulfill my joy. How? Just by, 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 stop fighting. Stop being mad all the time. Stop playing these games with each other. Right? Unify for the sake of the gospel. Let the other stuff go. The hour is late. The day is nearer now than when we first believed. You say, Tony, pastors were saying that 50 years ago. We're 50 years closer. We're not further away. He's going to come. He's going to come. And we can sit and argue about how. It's a waste of time. He is coming. And every eye will see Him. And everyone will give an account. He loves people. His delay is His mercy. So He's saying to His church, If anything I have done means anything to you, stop loving yourself and unite for the sake of the gospel. So we trust Him. We trust Him to make us what He wants us to be through repentance, through the renewing of our minds. That's how we are transformed. The renewal of our minds by a new way to think. Lowliness of mind. So that Christ alone will be exalted in the church. Because when we are out of the way and Christ is shining... God does amazing things. 